Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. Uh, my name is Mark Harding and I am very, very thrilled to be joined today by the author of The Inheritance Cycle and now To Sleep in a Sea of Stars, Christopher Paolini. Hello, Chris, and welcome to Booktopia. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's an absolute pleasure. Uh, so first question, um, we're doing all these uh, interviews at the moment remotely. Uh, so where are you right now and what has 2020 been like for you? Uh, I'm currently in my home office in uh, the state of Montana in the United States, which is a western state full of mountains and geysers and all sorts of wildlife. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Just imagine um, Lord of the Rings, but with more cowboys. <laughs> and as far as 2020, uh, I would say this year has sort of brought everything and then <laughs> a few things I didn't expect. Uh, there's a new book, of course, To Sleep in a Sea of Stars. Um, just lots and lots of work. And of course, I did expect to be touring and uh, getting to visit Australia again for this book. But alas, current events have uh, made that somewhat difficult. Yeah, it would have been great to be doing this in person and to, to have you visiting the Booktopia offices, but, but oh well. Uh, so uh, to sleep in a sea of stars, you're writing now in a genre outside of the genre that you're best known for. Uh, what drove you to make the switch to a science fiction novel instead of kind of staying on the fantasy track? Well, I mean, I, I grew up reading as much fantasy and as much science fiction as I did fantasy. My father's more of the science fiction reader in the family. My mom's more of the fantasy reader. So I was exposed to both growing up. And I love both equally. And I've, I've written, I spent a long time writing fantasy. And I so I wanted to try something in a different genre, but still dealing with a lot of the themes that still interest me while having spaceships, lasers, aliens, explosions, and of course, tentacles. Uh, plus, you know, fantasy in some ways is not always, but a lot of times tends to be a backwards looking genre. And science fiction, uh, again, not always, but is often a very forwards looking genre. And Personally, I find it of great interest to imagine the sort of future that humanity might have uh, as we move out among the stars. And that was something I wanted to write about because uh, since I may not get to see that myself personally, fiction is the next best way to uh, explore that. Um, so there's a, while we're talking about genre, there's um, a lot of kind of sci-fi subgenres out there. There's you know there's militaristic sci-fi, there's science fiction horror, there's kind of the optimistic utopian Star Trek kind of genre. Mm -hmm. And um, my interpretation of To Sleep in a Sea of Stars is that you've kind of rolled a lot of these subgenres in under the kind of umbrella of space opera. Um, mm. Why did, was it a conscious decision to kind of choose kind of the space opera umbrella? And um, and yeah, did you did you decide to do that or did it kind of happen organically? I'd say it happened organically with some amount of conscious thought. Uh, every author has a bit of a default set point of what sorts of stories they tend to like. You know, some some writers are naturally drawn towards short stories, some towards standalone novels, others toward big epic stories. And my, my brain tends to like those big epic stories. Uh, but I also did want to have um, a sense of optimism about the future. You know, you mentioned Star Trek, and uh, despite all the challenges that we face as a species in this particular moment, I really do think we have a wonderful future ahead of us uh, as a species. And there are so many stories nowadays that are quite grim and depressing, and not just fictional to stories. So I don't want to put something like that out into the world. I don't want to write something that's going to make people feel worse. 
ultimately. So even though in my future and in my story, uh, my characters face some incredibly difficult situations and um, <laughs> uh, it's not, I did not make it easy for them. Ultimately, I think there's a sense of hope and optimism underlying it all. That's, uh, that's interesting, because I, I did want to ask you um, kind of uh, directly whether you were optimistic about the future, because I think that sense of optimism does, does come through in the story, despite, of course, the challenges that your, that your characters face. Um, can, can you elaborate a little bit more on, on why you're optimistic about the future? Well, I mean, again, I, I, not, to, not to downplay the challenges we're currently facing, but by almost any metric, we're currently living in the golden age of humanity. That, again, does not mean that there aren't challenges, doesn't mean we can't make things better, but our medicine, our life expectancy, our technology, there are so many reasons to be optimistic. Um, and, you know, and I think even within uh, semi-living memory, we can think back to times like um, the Second World War, when if you had looked at current events during that time, you really might have thought the world was ending. So there are always tough times, there are always ups and downs, but, and, and progress is not inevitable. But uh, I think there is a lot to be hopeful for and a lot to be grateful for. So to sleep in a sea of stars is big. You kind of touched on that kind of epicness of the of the stories that you write before, and um, and it's it's a really it's a, it's it's a really big book. It's like eight hundred pages, almost nine hundred, I think, with the with mm -hmm. the um, appendices included. Um, did you know it would be this big, or did it kind of start out a bit smaller and then just grow in the telling? I did think it was going to be a bit bit uh, shorter, but as I was writing it, uh, the full scope of the story became apparent to me, and it was, at a certain point, I just realized, you know, it takes a certain amount of words to tell the story I want to tell, and there was no way around that. Also, unlike with my previous novels, which was The Inheritance Cycle, aka the Aragon books, I wanted to tell a complete story in one book. So readers should not feel as if they're going to read this giant book and then just be left hanging, wondering, you know, when's the rest of the series? Uh, this is a complete story. Now, it leaves things open for future adventures, and um, the setting itself is one that I want to explore. Uh, I'm actually calling it, this is the first book in the Fractalverse, that is the setting of this story, and it encompasses the real world and the present day, as well as the far future and the distant past. But um, writing a complete story in a single book is it was interesting to me both as a writing challenge and also as a reader, I find that the older I get, the more I appreciate authors and books that are able to do exactly that. Now, um, I think it's important to mention while we're talking about the kind of the size of the book is that um, I think you've done something that a lot of writers would be envious of, which is to write a, a long book, a big book that can be read very quickly. Uh, I found the pacing to just be um, at times quite breakneck. And that's <laughs> as a reader, I, I love that. Um, how did you approach that as a writer? Um, kind of spacing out those story beats and, and how quickly you kind of wanted to move through some of the events that happened. Well, I'm glad you felt that way. Uh, that was something I was hoping to accomplish. And I think my desire to do that came from what I learned when writing big epic fantasy, which fantasy tends towards, you know, long descriptions and um, a lot of place setting, if you will. And I just tried to be very efficient with my my words and the pacing with the story. And I use some very technical little tricks in the book, um, which readers may notice, which is like breaking up my chapters into sub chapters and doing things like that, which let me move in and out of scenes and in and out of locations as quickly as possible. Uh, and, and all of those, I think, help with a story like this, where you're 
in a big epic setting and there's a lot going on and you don't want to get dragged down too much in any one location or scene even though you do need to set you know set the scene for the reader and hopefully do justice to both the location the events and the characters themselves how long did it take you to write um to sleep in a sea of stars <laughs> oh man <laughs> well i mean i got the original idea for it back in 2006 2007 ish uh, but I was in the middle of finishing the inheritance cycle, so I, I just kind of put it put it to the side. And then uh, after I finished my last big book, which was Inheritance, and that was published in two, the end of 2011, I took a little bit of time off, and then I started researching this book. And I spent over a year uh, researching all the, the science and the technology for the book, which was a lot harder than I expected it to be, mainly because I wanted to create, I wanted a system of faster than light travel for my spaceships that uh, hadn't been used by some other big franchise, uh, that didn't allow for time travel the way so many of them do, and didn't contradict physics as we know it. And that's kind of a tall order. Uh, but I did find something that worked for me. And, uh, and then I, I've been working on it for, boy, I want to say about seven years, almost eight, if we count promotion and editing. So a long, long, long time. It's It's been a major part of my life. So something that um, I also really loved about this book was the Easter eggs that you've got hidden throughout. <laughs> um, often in the forms of like the names of places and characters, there's a lot of nods to great science fiction sagas. Uh, were you watching and reading a lot of sci-fi while you were working on this book? Not a huge amount as I was actually writing it, but a lot of that came from just my, my reading and background as a fan in general of science fiction. Uh, but you're absolutely right. There are mentions and little nods to uh, everyone from, you know, Dan Simmons' Hyperion series to Dune to the Alien franchise, uh, Babylon 5, Star Trek, um, uh, Ian Banks, uh, Ian N. Banks, who's a great sci-fi author, and... and uh, probably the Halo franchise and and tons tons of others. And the reason I did that is a because the book is set in the, ostensibly the real world, so all those things do exist within the world of the story. And b because uh, you know I like acknowledging uh, the one you know the people who came before, you know the the people who've invented various things, and and just to say yeah you know this is a cool little Easter egg. So. Um, you, you mentioned technology before when you were talking about research, and I'd like to mm. um, just explore that a little bit more as well, because uh, there's a ton of technology in To Sleep in a Sea of Stars. There's the advanced future human technology from, as you've mentioned, kind of spe uh, space travel, the way that we travel between stars, to the way that we use our personal devices and how mm -hmm. kind of embedded they are in, in, into, into our bodies. Then on top of that, you've got the alien technology that you explore as well, from spaceships to without kind of giving away too many spoilers, but biosuits and things like that. How did you develop your ideas around all of this technology? Well, I mean, some of it was just trying to extrapolate where we are to where we may end up. Like, I mean, we're already turning ourselves into cyborgs, essentially, with our smartphones. Uh, so we, we even have Elon Musk now, you know, with his uh, brain chip that he's proposing. So taking that to its natural conclusion, you know, what happens if you can embed your iPhone into your brain, that sort of thing. Uh, and I think we'll do it eventually. And I also think we're pretty close to being able to start doing serious serious gene modification, modifications, you know, genetic modifications of our bodies to tailor them, uh, not just to avoid diseases, but to certain purposes. So some of that was just extrapolating what I think are going to be 
um, techniques and trends that we will be doing no matter what. And then the rest of it was um, trying to imagine how physics uh, discoveries might go, which honestly, it's, a, it's kind of a fool's game. There are some huge, huge mysteries in physics that uh, we don't really have any real answer for. So whatever answers we hypothesize now are probably going to be mistakes. But I, I, I enjoyed trying. Um, the main principle that I let guide me is that there is no such thing as a free lunch, uh, which is actually something that uh, I think it was Heinlein originally sort of used that phrase for stuff in science fiction. And, and the, basically the meaning behind that is you don't get energy for free. You don't get money for free. You don't get anything for free. There's always a price. Uh, and if you, if you stick to that, even if you end up with some pretty you know, cool stuff with your technology, it keeps it grounded. It keeps it realistic. Mm. Uh, and and, uh, I, and I'll just I'll just point out too that you know I really tried to not dump this on my readers either. You know, people listening to this shouldn't think that the book is a physics textbook or something like that. A lot of this information is in the back of the book where it's not going to interfere with the story, and where it does apply to the story, uh, it's hopefully introduced in ways that is fun and entertaining and not at all you know boring. Yeah, and I think that that's something that really comes through as well. Um, and I wanted to echo that that sentiment as a reader. Um, very much, the technology doesn't kind of intrude um, onto the uh, onto the storytelling. It, it really feels um, uh, y you you do this quite masterfully. I think where enough of it is introduced to move the plot along without it kind of becoming a lecture, um, but it stays grounded and realistic. And what I really liked was the way that you did that with the alien technology as well. And what I wanted to ask around this was, um, I think it was Arthur C. Clarke who said that any sufficiently advanced alien technology would appear like magic to us. And there is kind of this alien presence at the core of the book that could come across like that. Again, trying not to get too spoilery. <laughs> and the main character has to spend a great deal of time trying to understand uh, what has happened to her and how she's going to interact with this and 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 kind of um, and and how did you conceive of something so alien but write it in a way that stayed so grounded? Boy, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> Sorry, quite sure how to. No, no, it's it, it's a great it's a great question. I'm, I see. I'm fighting the the temptation to give you a very cheap answer. Mm. The very cheap answer would be. I did what the story needed mm. and the story needed XYZ. So that's what I did for the story. But I also tried to, again, as I, as I said, keep in mind that there's no such thing as a free lunch. So that kept me away from things tipping into basically full on magic. And what does happen in the story with this, some of these alien pieces of technology sometimes seems inexplicable to my main character, but there's always a physical explanation for it. It might be made up physics, but there is a there is an explanation for it. Um, th so there's a lot of ideas uh, explored in this book, and I think it does what the best science fiction does, which is it uses heady science fiction settings and events to explore fundamental philosophical ideas that reflect concerns we currently have as a society. And I think one that we've mentioned before is this idea of you know personal devices and. Um, and you know how embedded they can become, and I, and I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that you know an, an idea that is explored is where the boundaries between the self and technology actually lie. Once that technology mm -hmm. becomes sufficiently kind of embedded, is this something that you were exploring consciously to reflect your own concerns and anxieties, or did it kind of happen more organically? I wouldn't say concerns, or I wouldn't even say anxieties. It's more my curiosity of where this may lead. I think technology has done some really wonderful things for us. Um, 
I've always joked that if the apocalypse happens, I'm going to have to rebuild society just so I can get the internet back. And I'm sure, I'm sure I, I wouldn't be the only person who feels that way. So with, with all of this, I was curious about it. And I wanted to also think about how technology joins us to society. You know, you can think of social media. You can think of all sorts of examples where because of our computers, because of our technology, we are ever more deeply embedded into society. And I also, I find it interesting to think about, you know, how do you separate out your sense of self as that trend continues? And moreover, if you, um, you know, what is your responsibility to society at large if society at large um, stops stops treating you well, doesn't, doesn't have a lot of regard for your own personal well-being, you know, where does your own responsibility fall? Uh, and I think those are questions we all have to think about, you know, how do you maintain a sense of autonomy when we're all so deeply connected? And connection's not a bad thing, necessarily, you know, connection is how we communicate as a species, it's how we advance as a species, but we still need a balance with privacy, we still need a balance with individual freedoms. And I, I don't have an easy answer for that. I don't think anyone does because, you know, the advantages of having access to our smartphones and our computers outweighs the disadvantages in a lot of ways. So no one's going to give that stuff up. It's a question of uh, what compromises are we willing to live with in order to have those advantages. Yeah. Um, you're an experienced world builder as an author with, you know, the inheritance cycle, um, obviously being a, a very rich fantasy world. How do you approach world building? And did you find it was a different process for you to do world building um, for a science fiction setting as opposed to a fantasy mm. one? I mean, a lot of the, the basic techniques are the same in terms of like how you go about it. Uh, the subject material may differ, but how you do it stays about the same. Uh, some of the things that I found very different were that, you know, if you're writing about spaceships, spaceships have, if you're, if you're being at all realistic, spaceships have a, basically a top speed that's limited by the technology, and they're not going to go any faster just because your characters need them to go faster. You can't dig in your spurs and tell the spaceship to hurry, it on, hurry up. Um, so that, that provided some challenges. Uh, also, I think when you're trying to be more realistic, that does put a little bit of a responsibility on you, the author, to do your homework to a degree and uh, try to get it right. You're not going to get it right all the time, but you can try. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I definitely took longer with the world building and um, spent a lot of time asking myself a lot of difficult questions. There were, there were more than a few times that I had to tear apart um, one plot point or another or rewrite because um, something just didn't work within the rules I'd given myself. So do you have like a, um, like a fractal verse Bible that, that you kind of go off for, for these questions? I do. Uh, I, I have an assistant who uh, was very, well, at my direction, she, she built, my, built me essentially a personal wiki uh, for uh, the fractal verse and also for the inheritance cycle. And uh, it's actually been an invaluable tool because I can always reference it during the writing or moving on to a new project and say, oh, okay, you know, how fast was the spaceship with this technology able to go? Or, you know, where exactly was that planet again? Or what color was that character's eyes? I mean, I have a pretty good memory, but with books this big and when you work on them this long, it's very easy to um, forget some of the smaller details. 
how do you get into the headspace of your characters? Um, and I'm asking this because we, we talk to a lot of authors who write contemporary characters, and that always seems to be one of the big struggles that they have is how to get into the head of, of somebody else. Now, you're not only writing um, a different character, uh, but you're writing somebody who lives hundreds of years apart from us in a different cultural context, and she has to deal with some very big problems. How do you get into, how did you get into Kira's head? <laughs> uh, well, I, I cheated a little bit because uh, some of the big, really big cultural differences that would no doubt arise between now and the year, you know, uh, the year when this story takes place would probably make the story difficult to understand if, if I was really diving into some of those big, big cultural differences. So I, I for the most part, left my characters humans as we would understand them now with a couple of obvious differences. And that definitely helped me. Also, I think that humans are humans. Yes, cultures change our behavior rather dramatically, but you know, on a basic level, we all need the same things. We need food, we need water, we need sleep, we need companionship, we need things to keep us interested and to give us meaning in our life. And that's been true in every human culture you know, throughout history. And in fact, you know, modern, anatomically modern humans popped up something like, what, 200,000 years ago. So humans have been humans for a long time. And that, knowing that gives you a grounding, uh, a grounding feeling and a place to start. And aside from that, I mean, putting yourself in the mind of another person is an act of imagination. And it's the basic tool of a writer. It's, it's what every novelist has to do. Uh, it is difficult at times, but you know, you do your homework, you think about the background of the character, you you find out, you know, you, you imagine what makes them laugh, what makes them cry, you know, what were the difficult experiences they had in their childhood or growing up, and that gives you a voice. And then, of course, it just comes down to practice with that character, experience. You know, you write a couple hundred pages, you you put them in different situations, you see how they react, you see how that meshes with your preconceptions of that character. And by the time you do all that, you get very, very comfortable with their thought process. And usually by the time uh, I get to an end, to a, end of a book, I have such a good idea of a character that I could imagine putting them in almost any situation and I would know how they would feel and react in that situation. So we do have um, a lot of uh, aspiring writers uh, in our audience, and they're always up um, for some insights into the writing process. Yeah. So um, a question that I often like to ask is, what what does your day-to-day -day look like when you're kind of in the thick of writing, of writing a novel? Well, uh, I get up in the morning, I grab some coffee, I sit down and try to read the entire internet, and I fail uh, miserably. And then I usually will answer a couple of emails. Uh, there's a lot of business stuff going on these days, so that might take a half hour or so, uh, 40 minutes if it's a lot. And then I'll, I'll jump right into the writing, and I usually write right into the mid-afternoon. Afternoon. Uh, I'll take a break, go for a walk. I'll write some more up until dinner, and then uh, if I'm really in the groove, uh, I might, I might uh, write some more after dinner. And I do, I do usually try to exercise right before dinner just because I sit so much. Uh, it's really important that I get my blood flowing and try to stay healthy. So that's the, that's the general, um, schedule. It doesn't really change for holidays. doesn't really change for weekends. <laughs> uh, just because you're self-employed doesn't mean you take more time off. It's usually the reverse. Mm. And, uh, I find that being consistent helps the creative flow stay strong. You can get burned out, but you recognize when that happens and then it's, you just give yourself a day off, day or two off and 
let your creative batteries refill? So this is um, kind of the first part of the Fractalverse saga. Uh, are there more stories planned? And um, will it be another seven to ten years? <laughs> Uh, no, it won't be another another seven to ten years. Um, and there are more stories planned, uh, and I'm also planning on doing more stories in the world of Aragon. But for the Fractalverse, there are definitely more properties on the way. Uh, I actually just took some time off and uh, took a took a break week and wrote a um, short sequel novella that we're going to release at some point. And I'm currently working on a prequel novel, that uh, a short prequel novel that I actually wrote back in 2013, and then I put it aside to go ahead and finish up To Sleep. So now, now that To Sleep is coming out, uh, I'm doing some serious revisions on the short novel. Uh, but I'm I'm pretty happy with the direction it's going, and once it's done, uh, that should be coming out fairly soon. Also, I had a couple of years where I couldn't really write the way I wanted, and of course, To Sleep was such a big project it chewed up a lot of time. But I don't think fans are going to have to wait quite so long for my next book. That's very exciting. <laughs> um, so you've written um, fantasy, science fiction. Are there any other genres that you could see yourself playing into in the future? Oh, totally. I mean, I, I love stories. I'd love to write a whole bunch of different types of stories. I'd love to write detective fiction. I'd love to write like military action thriller sort of thing. Uh, might even be fun to tackle a romance novel someday. So, you know, a good story is a good story. It doesn't always need to have dragons or spaceships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I feel like um, writing writing in kind of a broad genre like space opera actually gives you a chance to kind of have a bit of a foray into some of those subgenres uh, as well. It does. I mean, the the advantage of writing a, a story that uh, has such a broad sweep is that you can, as you just said, you can fit a lot of different types of smaller stories within that larger umbrella. Uh, you know, maybe this part of the book is a thriller or an action uh, sort of story. Maybe this part is a romance story, and that's a little addicting, quite honestly. You know, it, it's 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 almost um, limiting to try to write something smaller because it feels very constraining after having the advantages of an epic. But that said, restraint is not a bad thing and can often lead to great creative invention. Now, I was um, on your website um, before when I was doing um, a little bit of background uh, for this interview, and I saw that you you have a little video on there where you seem to be very excited to share. Um, your feelings around tentacles. <laughs> um, what is, uh, here's your opportunity to do it again. Well, uh, what is it about tentacles that, that is so important to you, that, that you love so much, and, and why should readers be excited? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, well, first of all, tentacles are fun. It's a fun word to say. Um, I, I, in writing science fiction, I felt that if I were going to write some aliens, that they had to have tentacles, because <laughs> they're just not proper aliens without tentacles. Um, and they do make some substantial appearances in the book, hopefully in, in interesting ways. And I, <laughs> I think that's about all I can say on tentacles at the moment without spoiling things. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 very cool. Um, I am I'm a fan of what you do with tentacles in this book as well. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, my last question for you: um, What do you hope readers are going to take from this novel? A whole bunch of stuff, but if I had to choose one thing, it would be that when they reach the final scene, uh, the final sentence of the final chapter, that they would get a tingle up their spine, and they'd put the book down, and they'd feel a sense of awe and wonder, and maybe a bit of a bittersweet ache at the journey they've gone on, and the fact that it's ended. And if I'm really, really lucky, maybe they'll just kind of go wow to themselves. Um, that, that would be my hope. 
Well, as I, this reader can tell you that um, I, I think you definitely uh, delivered on that. Um, I, I really, really love this book. And I'm very excited to hear that there's, that there's more on the way because my experience when I got to the end was uh, I want more. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's always a good sign. Um, and that is the plan. Like I said, this the fractal verse is something that I imagine my, I will be writing stories in for the rest of my life. Uh, there's a lot. Um, there's a lot of world building in it that's actually not even into sleep, and so that's going to be revealed in, in future books and future stories. Excellent. Well, um, Christopher Paolini, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and to chat about to sleep in a sea of stars. My pleasure. Thank you. And Sleep in a Sea of Stars is available on September 15, and you can order it at booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free, and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.